listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACOWatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner, co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Our guest today is Jeffrey Sullivan, Chief Technology Officer at Cloudfax J2 Global, Inc. The Cloudfax business unit at J2 Global, a NASDAQ-listed company with the ticker symbol JCOM, is an industry leader in secure document exchange solutions featuring the eFax Corporate, SFAX, and MyFax product lines. Jeffrey is responsible for all technology and product development for the unit. He has over 25 years of experience growing small to mid-sized companies that fuel their success with the innovative use of technology. He has an uncommon background that melds deep technical, creative, and business experience with the proven ability to execute at both the strategic and tactical levels. This breadth of background and flexibility of focus are vital to success in entrepreneurial and high-growth businesses. Jeffrey's past 15-plus years have been spent as a C-level executive, including CIO, COO, and CTO roles in fast-growth e-commerce SaaS, ERP companies in the real estate, financial services, and healthcare industries. So, Fred... Over to you. Help us get to know Jeffrey Sullivan and more about the High Trust Certification Program. Thank you so much, Greg. And Jeff, welcome to Pop Health Week. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you on and a really interesting topic we're going to get into today about High Trust. Before we go there, perhaps give us a little bit of your background and a little bit about the uh, company you work with. Sure. So I'm the Chief Technology Officer for the CloudFax Division of uh, J2 Global. Uh, I've been involved in healthcare for the past four years, uh, but I've been a senior executive in technology companies for the past 20 or so uh, in the areas of financial services, uh, child nutrition, and healthcare. J2 Global is a publicly traded company with a lot of different brands in media, software as a service, and also a specific division around everyday health, which is our everyday health division. And my focus in CloudFax is very heavily focused on the healthcare industry as healthcare is one of the major remaining uh, users of fax services. Fantastic. And I think what we really want to try to talk about today a, a bit is this whole issue that's really permeates throughout healthcare, which has to do with data security, protection, all of that. We, we've had all these issues come up around leaks, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about HITRUST. Who is HITRUST? Sure. The HITRUST Alliance is a consortium of companies, uh, largely in the, in the healthcare industry, that came together and tried to establish something that was a bit more of a prescriptive engagement than all of us in the industry had been dealing with to date. So as we all know, there are tons of, of compliance frameworks out there for security, for privacy, and other related regulations. And you know, there's things like ISO 27001, there's the NAST framework 853, there's SOC 2, there's HIPAA with its high-tech rules. But then there's also these related things like GDPR for international or European data privacy or the recently enacted and about to go live CCPA in California, which is very similar to GDPR. And, and all of these are really responses to the need for enhanced data security and privacy protections in this connected era that we live in. So, you know, everyone sort of, and I hear this all the time, and I hear from a lot of companies that I talk to or work with, well, we're HIPAA compliant, but what does that mean Mm -hmm. in comparison to high trust? 
one of the, the challenging aspects of being HIPAA compliant is that there is no really prescriptive way to demonstrate compliance. So there are a lot of specific requirements in the regs for HIPAA, you know, the, the High Tech Act, that kind of defines characteristics of compliance, but there's nothing that really helps you say, you do these 17 or, you know, frankly, more like 117 things, and you will be HIPAA compliant. So the, the word HIPAA compliance gets bandied about a lot, but there is no formal compliance certification for HIPAA. One of the things that HITRUST was brought about to try to resolve was reconciling the fact that while there are a bunch of specific requirements and a lot of broad characteristics in, in the regs, there wasn't really that prescriptive approach to how can I be sure that I'm HIPAA compliant. And so while HITRUST doesn't try to define HIPAA compliance, it is one of those things that, that was enacted to kind of reconcile all of these different mechanisms and provide one reasonably prescriptive, very comprehensive approach that allows you to say, you know, number one, I am HITRUST certified, right? So there's this element of external certification that is really important. In HIPAA, a lot of people who attest HIPAA compliance are stating that they're HIPAA compliant because they have assessed themselves and deemed themselves HIPAA compliant. The nice thing about these external certifications like ISO 27001 or specifically HITRUST in this context is that all of your compliance is being uh, attested to by an external authority that is, you know, impartial, independent, and knowledgeable about these facts. So when I think about HIPAA compliance, I think of it in the context of when somebody tells me they're HIPAA compliant, like, like say a partner or a vendor of mine, how can I evaluate that? And if all they can tell me is I'm HIPAA compliant, then what I need to start doing is saying, let me pull some search that you've got. And then I have to do my own assessment of, do I trust your attestation of HIPAA compliance? HITRUST was really designed to be one of those things that you can say, if you are HITRUST certified, then I'm confident that you are HIPAA compliant. And that actually applies to a number of the other things that, that HITRUST is trying to incorporate as well. One of the, the great things from my perspective around HITRUST is, I mean, number one, this is a really complicated field, but number two, I want to have something that can help me kind of wrest some order out of this chaos and make it more easy for me to grasp. And HITRUST has reconciled a bunch of these different frameworks and compliance requirements into a single framework, the, their CSF or cybersecurity framework that is on version 9.3 now. It was 9.2 when we certified earlier this year, which takes all of these things and reconciles them into a single view so that it lets you take all of these best practices and compliance requirements and put them into a, a single manageable framework that you can use to implement your plan for compliance. So when I think about HIPAA compliance and when I think about that in the context of high trust, that's how I think about it is high trust is a way for me to trust somebody's attestation of HIPAA compliance. Yeah, and it's interesting. You brought up something before we dig a little bit deeper into high trust. I think it's important for people to understand is, you know, there are a lot of companies that go out and they say, we're HIPAA compliant. We follow these regs or whatever. And that could be, hey, we ran a, a PowerPoint, you know, education program for our employees that went through HIPAA. But it really doesn't potentially say a lot about what they do, I guess. So exactly. whereas this is really having one, as you said, a third party go in and so I, I would hope that as companies, particularly some of those that may be less sophisticated, that may be sharing their employee health data or other data for a population health program, when they're doing that, they're going beyond asking that vendor, are you HIPAA compliant? Because as you said, you would then go in if they said, I am, and do a detailed survey if they don't have something else. 
So high trust is really like a good housekeeping seal, I guess, for their security approach and what they put in place in terms of systems. I, I think that's why they ultimately created, uh, why, why the consortium came together and created the high trust alliance was simply because HIPAA compliance is not really a thing. It is right. something that you have to do, but there wasn't any ability to hold on to that and and prove it. And so this is where I think the, the roots of, of what HITRUST grew out of. So with HITRUST, they have what they call their Common Security Framework or HITRUST CSF. What is that and how does that work or fit in with a company that they're trying to do this? Sure. So for us as a HITRUST certi- or a company that has HITRUST certified products, implementing the CSF is the kind of the, the roadmap or, or the blueprint for how you get to certification. So it is a collection of more than, gosh, the number of controls keeps changing. Uh, it was north of 135 when we did it earlier this year. I think it's north of 150 now. Uh, and it constantly keeps getting updated as they incorporate other frameworks and other requirements into it. But what it is is they, they divide these set of controls into a number of different categories, things like I'll just pick a couple examples, you know, mobile device management, you know, user session management, physical controls. And, and really, they have a, just a bunch of very specific guidelines around, you know, what you have to do in every one of these areas and what you have to satisfy to be kind of minimally compliant and what you have to satisfy to be kind of with a maturity model, you know, extremely compliant. And, uh, and then they, they score every one of those areas to produce a passing grade. What you look at those is, you know, those controls are really just a bunch of, of prescriptive definitions of the things that you should be doing to maintain an appropriate level of, of kind of industry-wide best practices around security, around privacy, and around processes and protocols. And it's not just things that you do. It's policies that you have to create, how you monitor those policies to make sure that they're being followed, and how you implement those policies in procedures. So it's, it's very comprehensive in that regard. And what I really liked about it when we came in here and started deciding to do it was it's, it is that blueprint for how to do something that is an extremely daunting and comprehensive task. And my understanding of it is that it really becomes tailored to what your organization specifically does and the risks or, or areas that you're facing with your product or service. So you may yep. have pieces of this that apply to a certain company that may not apply to another. Is that correct? Absolutely. So, and this is, you know, so we've gone through this at my current company on four products in the past year, two full certifications already, the final two that were in the final stages of getting completed. And we did it at, at a company at my prior company as well. So I've been through it a couple times. And one of the interesting things is how much different it is for every individual product and company that you're working with. And it's because they go through all of these hundreds of, of controls. And if you can either do this in, in a self-assessment or, and this is kind of one of the the tips that I would highly recommend is work with an external authorized assessor to, to work through this because understanding which parts of these things do and don't apply to your business is crucial. And, and I think one of the points that, that you kind of alluded to, you know, how can the framework be adapted to individuals is, is the thing to remember is this is not a pure compliance framework, a control framework. It is a risk assessment framework. And so when you look at this, there are certain areas which your organization just doesn't have a risk in. And so your compliance with those things is unnecessary because you don't have that risk that those particular controls are designed to mitigate against. And so, you know, having to go through this, you know, very comprehensive document, and I think our final assessment report was something like 300 pages long. I mean, this is comprehensive. Every one of those is a discussion around, okay, is this relevant to, to the organization and the, to the solution that you're providing? You know, yes, okay, if so, then we walk through, you know, how we've policied it and how we've implemented that policy and then how we've monitored our implementation. 
And so it's a very in-depth assessment of where you are on that. But there, there were whole sections that didn't apply in one of our products and applied in another or, you know, frankly, from the prior company that applied to that company and didn't apply to our company currently. And so this is the kind of thing that you really want to go through here and make sure that you understand exactly how it applies to you because, again, as I said, this is very comprehensive, and if you go through it blindly, it can be extraordinarily complex and expensive. And you gave, you know, your first piece of advice was, you know, find somebody, you know, who really understands this, an expert to help you with this. Given what you talked about, this 300-page report, obviously you must have really dug into what you're doing, how, and took those various areas and guidelines, et cetera, and applied them. How much time does something like this take? So depending on how mature your organization is from start to finish, so it's always one of these, it depends, right? So for us, we were in, in a pretty strong position from a security and compliance perspective initially. You know, we were HIPAA compliant, whatever that meant at the time, right? I mean, we were one of those companies that was attesting HIPAA compliance. And what that meant was that we had our compliance team go through all of the regs and determine how they applied to us and then put controls in place to protect them. So I felt like we were in a pretty good place. It took us nine months to go through this process and get certified. And I, I felt like we were in a pretty good place to begin with. I've worked mm-hmm. with other companies that have gone through high trust certification, and it has taken them two years or three years to go through because their existing systems were not really in a place of maturity where they needed to be so that they, they got there. But it is, it is a lot of time and investment. The assessments, you know, if, if you do an external assessment, will cost you money. I mean, this is, this is a significant investment, but what you get out of that is that certainty for your customers that you are providing them an appropriate level of control given all of the requirements in front of you. Sound like a, a sales pitch here for, for high trust, but you know, I think it's always a, a cost benefits analysis. And for us, because so much of our business is in, in healthcare, while high trust is not an official required standard, it is becoming the official standard. You know, every major contract with a healthcare organization that we're working with now is asking whether we're high trust certified or not. And when we are, mm-hmm. it changes the entire complexion of the discussion. It's just so much simpler in the process. Right. So I would assume there's benefits for it from the side of clients and, and gaining customers, as well as not having to constantly explain that you're, you're doing the right things. <laughs> and I would guess that there's, you know, given all of the financial penalties we're seeing about breaches and, and those kinds of risks, when you look at it, it probably really comes out on a favorable positive side to put in that kind of an investment up front, given how much attention and potential risk is associated with the data that healthcare companies have. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, we, we always, you know, look at these things as business decisions. And the business decision here was, you know, really kind of a sobering look at what it was going to take for us to become iTrust certified. And then that, that equation, you know, had those components that you mentioned. You know, on the one hand, it was just easier to acquire customers when we had this. But on the flip side, just controlling for the risk that you're exposed to when you're talking about handling, you know, this very sensitive EPHI. And, you know, every day we see these, you know, notices of breach and notices of, of exposure. And any one of those can be so damaging to an organization that, you know, it's really crucial that you do it. But I think it circled back to that conversation, you know, with prospective customers or existing customers that have kind of either um, had a change in ownership or just read the news and say, gosh, you know, are we really as protected as we need to be? Just being able to have that conversation with them around, you know, this is all the work that we've done 
to make sure that we're compliant in these areas and make sure that we're protecting your data as strongly and effectively as we possibly can. You've obviously been around in, in IT and technology for a long time, built a lot of systems. When you went through this process for the first time, were there things you learned or things that surprised you when you applied that to the company you had or were at? As I said, I've been in financial services. You know, we've, I've been through PCI uh, compliance for many, many years, you know, at many different companies. And one of the things that surprised me the very first time I went through high trust certification was exactly how challenging it was. I, you know, we had done PCI level one, you know, DSS level one compliance, and I thought that was a really stringent and difficult thing to kind of work through and put all of the controls in place on. And then the very first time we went through high trust, I was just blown away by it. And I'll be frank, at the time, I said to myself, I'm not sure that I ever want to go through high trust again because it was so <laughs> painful. And then we came here and they were, you know, talking about high trust and we decided we're going to go through it four times because we had four products that it was so crucial for. But what I really do, I liken high trust certification to exercising. I don't like exercising. I like having exercise, right? So I, I don't yeah. enjoy the process of going through this, but I enjoy the, the, the results that I get at the end of it, which is that my systems are now very, you know, well-defined, locked down. And I understand, you know, where my risk points are and aren't. And, you know, what it allowed me to do was take a, a system that I thought was in pretty darn good shape and expose some shortcomings that I wanted to shore up, some potential areas of vulnerability where our processes maybe weren't as mature as they needed to be or our implementation of that was kind of uh, lacking in some regard. It really just shines a spotlight on all of that. And uh, while it's sobering and challenging and exhausting in many ways, it's really great to have gone through it. And it's, I, I definitely understand the value that it provides to both our organization and to our customers' peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Right. And you mentioned PCI a couple of times. Could you, for our audience, tell them what that means? Because some may not be aware of that term. Oh, sure. So PCI is, is the payment card industry uh, data security standards. And it is one of the many things that th these different security frameworks that various industry focuses or, or business vertical focuses use. So anybody that deals with credit card information has to deal with PCI compliance. And so it's just one of those examples. But, you know, other examples would be GDPR, right, the general data mm -hmm. protection rule that's, that's out of Europe. And a lot of these systems have very overlapping requirements, you know, uh, encrypting your data at rest, encrypting your data in transit, restricting access to sensitive data to people with a legitimate business purpose to have access to that data. Just, just you know, hundreds and hundreds of these things. And I would say that if you look at this Venn diagram of, of all these industry standards and, and what they require, there's an awful lot of overlap there. And one of the things that HITRUST has done and continues to do is kind of look at all of that and try to consolidate all of that into one comprehensive framework rather than you having to rationalize the fact that, you know, requirement 5.1 in DSS is also requirement 17.C.2 in the NAST framework, and it's 22.4 in HITRUST, right? So HITRUST just brings all of those together unless you get them all in one place and rationalizes them so you, you don't have to deal with all that complexity because any organization that's doing any material amount of work, you know, in software or data services just there's a litany of these things that you have to comply with, and it, they keep coming every day, right? The CCPA, <laughs> that California's version that I talked about earlier, you know, becomes enforceable January 1. A lot of other states are likely to follow suit with similar guidelines, and the CCPA itself was kind of modeled on the GDPR, 
these things just keep coming and they keep coming because the problem keeps coming up, right? You know, we, we keep hearing about breaches and, and leaks and exposures. And so everybody wants to try to control their data more effectively. Obviously you're at a, a substantial organization, you know, big, big company. We're seeing all these small players come into healthcare, new technologies, new ideas and apps, patient data flowing all over the place. What would you tell them as they go to build their product? Should they take a yeah, look at this right up front? Uh, if you're in healthcare, I think you have to look at this. You may make it the business decision not to do it right now because it doesn't work for you. But one of the things I had this conversation with that friend of mine who was in a, I won't call them a startup, but maybe a late stage healthcare startup recently. And, and he was telling me, you know, Jeff, I'm not sure that I can afford to go through that level of compliance. And what I told him is, listen, uh, right now you're struggling, you know, these smaller companies are struggling to acquire every piece of business they can. And there's a lot of companies that if you're providing some fairly unique service, will be willing to accept a level of risk from you. But sooner or later, you're going to hit a big customer that you really want to have, and this is simply going to be a must-have for them. And so you're going to be limiting your ability to grow, and you're also going to be finding that if you try to add these controls later, it is so much more expensive than doing them earlier, right? If you have them in place and you keep them up, it is just so much cheaper and easier than trying to put them into place after the fact. So you really do have to think about this. It is certainly a business decision. And, you know, there are ways to be 100% safe, compliant, and wonderful without going through something like iTrust. But having the, the, the resources to pull all of that together, understand all of the different aspects and regulations that matter and all of the different best practices, what I found in iTrust was a, a framework that allowed me to think about so many different things in one concrete place and make it easy for us to do. So not easy by any regard, but one of those things that really helped me to crystallize a lot of the best practices that we've been following in a bunch of different areas into something that was uh, more easy to manage. It's just there's there's so much to this. Yeah, I would recommend, I know, as you said, it's a business decision, but given all the issues we're facing with healthcare data and more and more of it flowing from patients and everywhere else into the system, you know, you don't want to be that new startup that suddenly had a major issue and because that'll be the end of that startup rather oh, rapidly, yeah. you know, right. one, so. one headline and you're done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let alone the, the ability to then get that large client because they said, Oh, you high, you're high trust certified. Let's, uh, we feel comfortable with that. Let's take a deeper dive into your product. So that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your product. You know, you're in the fax business. And a right. lot of people obviously say faxes. Wait a second, what's going on with that? So tell us a little bit about <laughs> what it, what you do and why. So uh, I would count myself among those. I, I only recently joined this company, and when I had the conversation about this company, my first response uh, to when they got to the the point of explaining what the company did was people still fax, you know, because I'm I'm a technologist. I've been in technology for many many years, and. You know, I'll fax a document three or four times a year when I have to do it for some specific purpose. But what I learned is that in healthcare, as recently, and I think this stat may be a little stale, it's maybe a couple years stale, uh, more than 70% of all healthcare data interchange happens via fax. And it's for a couple reasons. I mean, number one, fax is ubiquitously available. Right? Everybody can receive and send fax. Not everybody can send and receive HL7 or fire messenger or is on an HIE and being able to or send secure direct messages. And those are kind of these technologies that are, you know, more modern, more more conventionally acceptable, but they're just not as, as pervasively available. 
Number two, fax has a certain level of security associated with it because it is not so easy to intercept. Is it impossible to do? No, but it is so much more difficult to do. And in fact, there are certain protections that have been codified into law with regarding, uh, re regards to fax in terms of uh, you know, guaranteed deliverability and, and you know, phone records that, that tie to proof of delivery that, um, that it, it has a lot of specific advantages. What we offer in CloudFax is letting you get rid of that you know, fax machine sitting on the, the corner of the desk and printing something out, feeding it through that machine and having it you know, come out in a printer or telefax machine on, on the other end. So CloudFax allows you to incorporate a lot of the more modern technologies in there, but at its heart, it's still fax and it in, enjoys the, that ubiquity. You know, anybody can receive a fax. Uh, anybody has the ability you know, through services like ours and others to, to send a fax. But it's, it's really about kind of where you go from here. And, and one of the things that, that we're doing at J2, and specifically in my division, is we're trying to, to open up that bridge to between fax and these other technologies because I, I completely agree that long-term uh, electronic data interchange is the way that we need to go. It's just that it's hard to do right now. The interoperability isn't where everybody wants it to be. And so we have to give more and more op options for companies to be able to do these things in different ways that matter. So, you know, I'm 100% I'm on board with HL7 and fire message interchangeability with secure direct messaging. But CloudFax has a piece in that as well. And, you know, mm -hmm. things like uh, I was on a, actually on a webinar maybe a month or so ago around TEFCA, you know, which is the trusted exchange framework that's being built by or being promoted by CMS around how we get this medical information more, more tightly interchanged. But the, the fact of the matter is that right now, if you told me, you know, Jeff, you've got this medical uh, record and you absolutely must get it to this doctor and you don't know anything about them. The one thing I'm absolutely certain of is they'll, they should be able to receive that via fax. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And sometimes we forget in healthcare that while there's been a ton of emphasis on getting this, you know, EMRs and technology into doctors and into the hospital systems, and there's a fair amount of connectivity between the payers, you have this whole other system out there of nursing homes and others that may mm -hmm. not have those electronic capabilities, and they're still using this technology quite a bit. Exactly. Yeah, referrals yeah. is huge. Um, you know, just the, the, the whole continuum of care isn't in, in a single uh, interchangeable framework like, you know, the, the broader world technology is with the Internet. And so you have to have these abilities to say, you know, when I need to get this to a certain, uh, you know, pharma, you know, or I need to make this referral or I need to get this um, ex ex uh, discharge document out to the, the recipient uh, right away. You just have to have every tool at your disposal to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today. And thanks for that deep dive into high trust. Very helpful. We'll probably have to get you on again as this continues to advance and move forward. And thanks also for explaining a little bit about how fax technology is still in use today. Appreciate you coming on Pop Health Week. That's been great. Thank you. Back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Jeffrey Sullivan, the Chief Technology Officer at CloudFax J2 Global, Inc., for his generous time and insights today. For more information or to follow J2 Global and eFax Corporate's work, go to www.j2global.com and www.efaxcorporate.com and do follow their work on Twitter via at J2Global and at EFAX Corporate, respectively. For Pop Health Week, 
my colleague Fred Goldstein and Healthcare Now Radio. This is Greg Masters saying bye now. (laughs) 